0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Name on the Trophy, Manchester United podcast with me, Dominic Booth, joined, as always, or not as always, but again by Alex Wiley, back from a slight sabbatical. How are you, Alex? Yeah, good. Um
1: It was a forced sabbatical, really. I, don't, I just don't think I was invited for the previous episode, but otherwise, yeah, I'm pretty good.
0: Make it awkward that I haven't invited you. <laughs> What's less... What's less awkward is uh, talking about Manchester United for us, but maybe their current form will create uh, some talking points for today's podcast for sure. Alex, I didn't really give this one the big level of research and organisation that we usually give. I'm going to be upfront with the listeners about that (laughs) because it just feels like a good time to just maybe have a little bit of a moan uh, and a debate and a discussion about what's going wrong at the moment, because three defeats on the bounce, four defeats out of six games this season, it, it feels like everything's going wrong, but there is some mitigation for it, in my view. I don't know what you think. There's, there's definitely a lot of things to dive into.
1: Yeah, I think part of it is bad luck. And the main thing that I think is bad luck is the injuries. I think as poorly as United have managed, no team deserves this number of injuries and this much disruption. Um, You could argue that the club's been forced into a difficult situation, firstly with Greenwood and now with Anthony, that to a small extent you could say is not their fault. I think it is their fault for the way they handled it, but maybe not their fault for it just happening in the first place. Um, And then other things are, are their fault. You know, the Glazer ownership and, the cloud that hangs over the club as to when it's actually going to be sold, the tactical systems that Ten Hag's put in place. I think that is the club's fault and it's all come together in this terrible, terrible start.
0: I don't know which one of those to pick up first on really, but I think maybe the playing side and the the injuries is is interesting to talk about because you talk about those injuries for Ran, Shaw, Mount, Malassia... Amrabat not ready to come in yet. Then you got to get into Anthony and Sancho being away from the squad. Um, mm-hmm. May knew who they had big hopes for to to come in in this season and play a big part. Uh, Wamba Saka has now gone down after the Brighton game. That can't be legislated for, can it? But it it leaves United in a position where they're going to be criticised at the same amount that they would if they had a full squad and had these results. There's a lot of punditry and a lot of journalism going on, which doesn't take that into account. Should it do? Or should United have a squad deep enough and, and well-prepared enough to to offset that?
1: It's, tri- it's tricky. Um There's a middle ground, basically. United, even with this many injuries, shouldn't have lost, is it four games now? <laughs> they shouldn't four have lost six. that many. Yeah, Four out of six. So no matter how many injuries you have, really and this is the entire squad, you shouldn't be losing four out of six. But on the other hand, that number of players is going to affect your performance. And not only is it affecting the performance that we can do, but it's also affecting the way that we play. The Brighton game in particular, we played a completely new tactical system as a result of those injuries and also partly to try and um, mitigate the... Right an attack that's not you know like i don't I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but the point is um it's yeah,
0: not completely... it, it, it's ten, it, it's it's a challenge for Ten Hag that he doesn't necessarily he's not accounted for before the season he's come he's come up with it on the fly basically in an international yes. break in the knowledge yes. that Anthony and Sancho are both out for various reasons. It may well work. It may well be something that Ten Hag uses further down the line. And I think it has got legs. I mean, they don't need to get too into it. But when Mason Mount comes back, it makes a lot of sense, that system, for me, because it's a way of getting Mount and Bruno Fernandes in the side, yeah. um, while not sacrificing legs and protection uh, in the middle. So you could play Mount and Amrabat, say, either side of Casemiro, and then uh, Fernandes as uh, the number 10. But then you come on to... Um, players that played against Bayern Munich on Wednesday night, and United obviously lost the game 4-3, and mm-hmm. we could do an entire hour-long podcast about that game, which I'm sure a lot of people will do. But United had Sergio Reggion at left back and Facundo Polistri on the right wing. Uh, I made this point on Twitter that neither, in my view, are Manchester United's standard players in terms of their ability both were praised for their performances in the game because of the sort of effort that they were seemingly putting in and their determination and desire and all those old-fashioned things that people like you don't like to speak about. <laughs> it's only a result of the injuries and the situation that the club are in that they're playing. They shouldn't yeah. be playing for Manchester United, especially in a game against Bayern Munich. And even the fact that United took on Bayern Munich with, with them in the side and with all the injuries kind of seems like a plus, but then when you when you take into account all the previous defeats and performances, it, it doesn't seem like you can take many positives, even scoring three goals at the Allianz.
1: Yeah, I mean, going back to the Brighton, the point I wanted to make is the reason we played so badly in that game was because we were playing a brand new tactical system that was being forced on us due to injuries. And although it worked well for the first 20 minutes... It then quite quickly got found out when Brighton realised if you just go wide, you effectively get round our midfield, you find space, you get two v ones on the wing, and then you score goals. I think every Brighton goal came from that exact movement. Injuries have that that sort of effect. It's not just the quality of the players on the pitch; it's also the tactical systems that you that you can play with those players, and then go to the Bayern Munich game. I mean, Reggion, I actually think is a good player. I think it's a, it's a weird signing because in the not-too-distant future, we'll have Malassia and Luke Shaw at left back. And then I'm not sure what you do with Reguillon. But to be fair to him, in the first two games, certainly going forward, he offers quite a lot. And it wouldn't surprise me if in the next couple of weeks, him and Rashford have a bit of joy on that left-hand side because there's been flashes that look really good as for Polistri, I agree he shouldn't be starting against Bayern Munich, but every team has players that maybe aren't so good to play for the first 11, but you can rotate them in. And it's unfortunate that they're coming in against one of the best teams in the world. Yeah, that's But okay. that, is, that, that is what happens. And as I said on the previous podcast, these injuries aren't going to last forever. So I don't think United should be criticized for not planning or not thinking these things through I just think this is really bad luck and I think in a month's time it will look no way near as bad as it is now so I don't I don't want you know fans and pundits to be too critical on that front
0: no but it, it's it's Manchester United as as they say and you just can't afford these sorts of results and I think the Brighton one was the was the one that, that's really put the pressure on. If United had gone to Bayern Munich on the back of a, a win or you know a good performance against Brighton, I think that the pressure would have been a lot less. But I also think it's worth stating how how many pieces of bad fortune I believe United have had in the past few games. Even aside from the injuries, I mean, go back to the, the finish against Arsenal, Garnacho millimetres away from, from winning mm-hmm. the game, it would have been 2-1. Um, Brighton, United millimetres away from making it 1-0 through Hoyland, who knows what what that would have had in terms of an outcome on the game, By Munich the penalty against Christian Eriksen for me is, complete, is a complete farce, yeah. a complete farce no matter what anybody says if that is a penalty then the rules are wrong, yeah. in my opinion it's not a penalty, and, and, and Andrea Nana makes that mistake right after United have played really well for 20-25 minutes and mm. makes a a pretty unforgivable mistake as a goalkeeper, so that's two of Bayern Munich's four goals that that were really really avoidable, um for me. So that's three games on the bounce where United have just not had the rub of the green. And I know it's not fashionable to talk about rub of the green, um uh, especially on this podcast where we talk about stats and stuff. But wow. I just feel like that contributes to the overall malaise that's that's setting in and that, that fuels the the media narrative about United, you know, United are are everywhere you look all the time, Mm. especially when they lose. So yeah, it's, it's, it's all contributing to the, to the downfall at the moment and putting more and more pressure on not just Den Haag, but the club.
1: Yeah. and And it does spiral, doesn't it? But you say this isn't for this podcast talking about bits of bad luck, but that's exactly why we talk about sample size. You know, you shouldn't jump to conclusions based off a few games because, and you pointed out, little things can not go your way that can lead to big conclusions. If you don't just sit, like sit down and just take in the result as it's happened, like the Rashford, I'm still not convinced the, the ball went entirely over the line. I don't think VAR, the VAR's technology is good enough to make those calls. Fundamentally, the only way you can do it is by having a camera over the top of the ball Likewise, the Garnaccio offside, I don't think VAR technology is good enough to make those calls. And really what I think they need to do is for those kind of decisions, you just go with the on-field decision. Until until you can have the technology that UEFA has where you can actually have a snapshot almost like um, what they have in tennis where it's exactly to the millimeter, whether it's offside or onside or not. Um, you shouldn't be making those calls. And then the handball rule. I think fundamentally, because I, I was thinking about it yesterday, what it boils down to is referees not understanding the natural position a hand should have when a player is moving. That's what yeah. it seems to boil down to because it's not deliberate handballs. We they're quite easy to call. It's those handballs where the hand is above the shoulder, almost always when the player is moving. And the ball is hit at them from a millimetre or like a, a yard away. And they haven't had time to react to it. And referees seem to be interpreting that as they're deliberately making their bodies bigger. And that is leading to the handball. But it just isn't. I mean, Ericsson was literally turning, moving at the same time. So naturally, of course, his hand is slightly slightly raised. And you can even see he tries to sort of move it out of the way as it's coming to him. So that's three decisions. He, he
0: doesn't have time to do it, does he? He doesn't have time to take his arm away. He, he does it as it hits right. his arm
1: yeah so that's that's three decisions all of which i think var isn't equipped or the referees aren't equipped to actually make the correct decisions and th- all three of those james change on that the bayern munich game turns into a draw and if you took in expected goals there's also a draw on expected goals and drawing in terms of expected goals against bayern munich away who you know maybe didn't play that well themselves it's not it's not that bad um the Brighton game, I think, was pretty problematic and got worse and worse as the game went on. So I'm not, I'm not saying United should be, um, let off the hook, but just to go back to the original point, it's a small sample size. Weird things can happen, and let's not you know, toss the baby out with the bathwater.
0: Yeah, it just feels like these things are conspiring against United for the time being. And I suppose the 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 other side of the coin is that these things happen to good teams like Manchester City uh, and they're good enough to to off- offset it and perform well enough to still win games and not be relying on the fine margins that United seem to be at the moment. I mean, the, the raw facts aren't good for United. I think they've conceded more than two games, um, more than two goals in every game, apart from the opening game this season. So that's five on the, on the spin, where they're considered two or three, which is very worrying, and I think that that comes down to something else which is a concern which which needs addressing, which is the form of, of two real key pillars of last season in Lisandro Martinez and Casemiro, both of who aren't injured, have been playing every game, but whose form is just nowhere near the level it was last season, and for no particular reason. I mean, there are, there are reasons, I think, for Casemiro. Uh, he needs some help in there, but Martinez... He just seemed to have the lot last season. He seems to have that aggression. He read the game really, really well. He was a revelation. He just looks a little bit lost at the moment.
1: Uh, I think that's harsh on Martinez. I haven't... I, I haven't don't think he's anywhere near last, last
0: year's level. Alex. Maybe I really don't.
1: not. Maybe not. I mean, one thing I would say, as for a reason why everyone in the defence is being exposed, is... I think we're playing with a more aggressive and high press this season. I was actually looking at the stats in terms of high turnovers for the opposition. So where they've lost the ball close to their own goal, United are the best at forcing those in the league, believe it or not, despite what's felt like quite a bad performance. They're the best in the league. But then if you look at a stat called passive per defensive action, they're actually around middle. And so that's passes allowed per defensive action. So if the opposition is getting a load of passes before you're putting a defensive action in, your press isn't quite so good. If they're not getting a lot of passes put together before you're putting a defensive action, then your press is a bit better. And they're actually about mid-table for that. And so what that says to me is that United are being very aggressive at the very front of the pitch. So they're trying to win win it really high up. And then if that's getting broken, the press isn't quite so effective. And you're seeing that in games, particularly with Casemiro, that first line of the press breaks down. And then it's almost on Casemiro to cover a hell of a lot of ground. And I think with his age, he's getting older, he's getting slower. I don't think it's fair for him to be put in those sort of positions. Mm. And it shows his limitations. It shows his increasing limitations as he gets older. And I think for the entire defense, really it leaves them in a position where they get exposed as well. Now, I haven't felt that Martinez has been exposed quite as much. And maybe I'm looking at it with rose-tinted glasses because I like him. But I think oh, for the I entire like defence... But... Yeah, yeah, like he he's a very good player. And he's still, even when he has a bad game, I think he's still one of our better defenders. But I think for the entire defence, that is part of the reason they are maybe not looking quite as good as they did last year.
0: Is this a, a tactical error on Ten Hag's part then to, to set United up in such a way? I mean, I, I've I've liked the four one, four one with the with Ericsson pushed up and and Fernandez. I like that against teams at home when United are expected to to win and to have the bulk of possession. I think it's a it's a really good system and it's something that the Solskjaer should have used a lot more often when when he was playing two defensive midfielders against poor sides at home and people criticised him for it. But I almost think Ten Hag needs to go the other way now, um, especially a, a against Bayern Munich away. I know there wasn't really another option, so maybe he had to play Eriksen, back to the injuries there. But to to play that, that midfield and leave Casemiro on his own, I think is a, a foolish piece of, ta- of tactical advice from Ten Hag. I think that Amrabat can't come in soon enough to play alongside Casemiro. And just offer that protection, and you go to that four, two, three, one that he played against the better sides occasionally last last season when Fred would often play in there. Go go back to that. Um mm. you know, you have to sort of stop the bleeding at this stage, and United's defense is is porous, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's difficult to criticize Ted hard because I think what he wants to what he wants to bring in on paper makes sense given the players we have. He wants us to be the best transitional side in world football. But the players and... we
0: have are not the players we have available at the moment due to the yeah. injuries. That's, that, that's, that's the problem.
1: The, that's that's the difficulty because there's still some players that I think are great for that. I think Bruno Fernandes is good for that. I think Hoyland's good for that. But I think Casemiro being the guy that sweeps up if and when it breaks down is a problem that Ten Hag doesn't quite seem to realize and
0: he's not he's not 2016 yeah. ngolo kante in that role no. is he he's not covering every blade and and sweeping everything up in front of the back four he's he's more of a reader of the game and he's not blessed with pace or great mobility really is he
1: no even during like his best days at real madrid he was rarely that isolated he either had uh, cruz and or modric alongside him and they obviously helped with, with passing. He did the, the leg work, did the defensive work, and then passed off to them. But they also filled in, filled in space. Even if you talk about last season, Ericsson did not do a lot of defensive work. Like if You just look at the numbers, not a lot of tackles, not a lot of interceptions, but he still filled in the space, which helps defensively. It doesn't leave you as isolated. And it helped with ball progression. And I think this season, Ten Hag's biggest mistake is thinking that Casemiro A, has the legs to cover that much space defensively, and B, has the passing range to be able to pass into that final third for the other players. Although occasionally he does really nice passes and first-touch passes, he gives the ball away a hell of a lot for a defensive midfielder. I think it's one in four passes he's given the ball away. Compare that to someone like Amrabat. He gives the ball away one in 12, one in 13. You need to be secure in possession, in that position, especially if you're as isolated as he is. And I think Ten Hag needs to realise that Casabira is not the man to use if you're going to implement a high press.
0: Yeah, it's idealistic from Ten Hag, isn't it? And He started off his first season in the same way and then had to row back from it. We've spoken about that before. And I know why he started this season with his ideals and his desire to make United the best transition side in the league or in the world whatever you want to say um but he needs to look at the the outcome and the performance level of you know his key player last year really casemiro was did he win player of the year he, he should have done um he was no, i think it was rashford actually but i think casemiro was very very close to it and mm-hmm. arguably deserved it from the difference that he made you know he was putting out fires for united last year he was he was pulling them out of the mire Way way too often, and now you see his performance level drop a little bit. You see the system not quite suiting him, and and then it it looks like a bit of a mess. Yeah. Uh, if, what what does happen from now? And I know the United's run of fixtures after after this um, is a lot kinder. Burnley away, Palace in the cup, then Palace again in the league, both at home, and then home games against Galatasaray and Brentford before the next international break. I mean. You almost feel that Hag would need to win every single one of those games to truly get United back on even Keel and alleviate the pressure. But what does he do? What is the tactical plan to do that? Is it simply relying on people coming back from injury?
1: I think for the time being, until we have someone else who can play instead of Ericsson, I think someone should be sitting alongside Casemiro, regardless of who you're playing against. I think defensively and on the ball, that makes sense. Once players come back, I'm talking mainly Mason Mounts and or Amrabat, I think you can start trying to implement that high press that you want to implement. I do you could see it working and every now and then it does work. It's a high risk, high reward strategy. And it's the kind of strategy that could have actually worked really well in these small amount of games had certain chances been taken and had the opposition not been so clinical. It is one of those ones where it's very easy for it to look very bad and it's very easy for it to look very good. It's it's that's why I'm, I don't want to blame Ten Hag too much, but I think for the time being, with the players that we have, it makes sense to just drop someone deeper, someone like Ericsson, or even like a McTominay who can help out defensively, not leave Casemiro's exposed and also help out with ball progression. Once someone like Mason Mount's there and you maybe have Amrabat instead of Casemiro, you could actually maybe play the high press because I think Mason Mount is a lot more active and and a great presser and Amrabat is more mobile than Casemiro and also better in possession so could be more isolated theoretically but I think for the time being you have to just let go of that principle, drop someone back and then think about doing it moving forward once we had the players
0: How far are we away from Casemiro being dropped?
1: I don't feels, think it's it going to happen feels like
0: a, It feels like a way away, I feel like the other solutions will come before that
1: Yeah yeah, I don't like. Like I said, Casemiro, I think is declining, and as I've said for about a year, that footballers do decline quite quickly when they get into their thirties. But it's not like he's gone from being fantastic to rubbish. Like it's not that simple. What's really happened is he's. I think he's slightly dipped, and now we're playing a system that exposes that dip more, so it looks worse than it actually is. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think he should, he should get dropped anytime soon. I don't think. That's fair. I just think the t- the system needs to change.
0: What about Marcus Rashford? Um, seeing him come in for some stick in in recent games for sort of perceived lack of pressing, lack of energy. There there were some replays of him in the Brighton game that were doing the rounds. Decision making, I think, in, in the final third is a, a stick that people used to beat him quite a bit. I know he's not really found the goal scoring form of last season, but I think you said it um, in the summer at some point, he probably was never going to. Um, He was going to be a a slight regression to the mean, Rashford, because last season he was so sensational and so clinical. Mm. And really, uh, the rest of his career, he hasn't been. So should this just be expected, the the form of Rashford this season, or is it a concern for you?
1: Is it a concern for me? Um, His goal scoring rate dropping off was always going to happen. His finishing rate last season, no footballer holds that for the entirety of their career. So I expected that to dip down a little bit. I think when I was talking about the players we have for a pressing system, one of the players I'd say is an issue with that is Marcus Rashford. I and it's not for it's not for lack of um physicality. I mean, he has everything you'd need to be a good presser. It's just in certain situations, I think when he gets frustrated with how the game is going, he can let his man go. And then, as you know, any pressing system in which one player isn't doing his job becomes not only redundant, but actually becomes like a net negative because it's easy to play around and then you can take loads of players out of the game. So I think from, from pressing, it's one of those things that he just needs to be more consistent with it. And in terms of decision-making, look, Rashford has always been a very selfish winger. As I've said before in previous podcasts, he's a goal-scoring winger. He's a winger who likes to cut in and take the chances himself rather than create for teammates. And when that's not working, it's frustrating. Um, The Brighton game in particular, his expected goals was 0.6, 0.7, which like for a winger is absolutely phenomenal. Even for a striker that is like top one or 2%, he just didn't put any of those chances away. And if he's not putting those chances away and you're looking at certain clips when he could have squared it to Hoyland, for example, yeah. that leads to frustrations. So look, I think Rashford is still one of our better players. I think his goal scoring rate will definitely pick up. There's no way he plays that Brighton game week in, week out and doesn't score goals in at least a few of them. So I think United fans just need to be patient and hope that he presses a little bit more moving forward.
0: Yeah, it feels like he needs to strike up a relationship with Rasmus Hoyland as well. It feels like that is something to be tapped into, just understanding what Hoyland is about, Hoyland's, Hoyland's movement, where he likes the ball. He seems to like to play with his back to goal quite a bit, Hoyland. But he also does have that option of going in behind, which is a novelty in itself for United striker the last few years. Uh, it just seems to have that sort of penalty box instinct, which is very encouraging for me. And if I was picking out a positive to to go on in the last few weeks, I think uh, Rasmus Hoyland would definitely be one. You know, mm-hmm. he probably should have two goals in in two starts if if that one against Brighton counted. Also, Rashford's relationship—you mentioned it with with Sergio Reggion. So, Reggion has played quite well. I've still got my doubts about his ceiling. I think that it mm-hmm. isn't the highest, but. He's putting it all in. He looks like he, he really, really wants uh, to prove a point at United, which which I really like. But actually, everything that reggian's done well in, in his performances so far hasn't really been with Rashford. There hasn't really been that interplay, that dovetailing mm-hmm. between the two that you see between Rashford and Shaw that developed over the years. So I want to see that. I want to see Rashford um, yeah, develop relationships with those two. Obviously, two brand-new players that he's never played with before. And it has looked a little bit at times like United are, are still a team of strangers with some of the new the new players that have come in. Mount, for example, when he's played, hasn't um, looked particularly congruous with the rest of the midfield. And Reggion and, and Hoyland and then Amrabat when he comes in. I mean, people expecting Amrabat to be this all-saving power in midfield. He's going to solve all the problems. He hasn't had a preseason to speak of. He's barely played for, for Fiorentina. Barely played since um I think the Conference League final or whatever it was at um the end of last season. So time time is of the of the essence when these uh new players are gonna be considered.
1: Yeah, the 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 Rashford and Reguilón relationship, you can see in certain phases of play that it could be very good for United and the person I blame for it not working out so far is Rashford in a lot of attacking moves he gets blinkers on it's almost he's almost like this and he just doesn't see anyone else other than the goal and like I said before he can be very selfish there are a lot of phases certainly in the Brighton game where Reguilón made an overlap. He's really good at that. Like he, yeah. he's. I'd say he's actually better than Luke Shaw and Molassio at making those overlaps. He, He's brilliant at getting down the line. And there were quite a few moments where Rashford just needed to release him in and he could have literally played him on the left-hand side of the penalty area, like some of these, like the amount of space that Reguillon had. And he got blinkers on and he shot. And the same with Hoyland. There are quite a few examples of where Rashford sort of had it in the left half space and could have squared it to Hoyland who was making the run and instead took the shot on. And in those instances, yeah, I blame Rashford mainly. I just think he needs to take a step back from being the guy that needs to score all the goals and start, and start thinking more from sort of a team level because although his expected goals was was good against Brighton, I imagine on a team level it would have been higher had he just played in Reguillon at certain moments or squared it to, to Hoyland. But Rashford's still a fantastic player and he's frustrating because he can, he can be so good. And when he's not, it is it is very frustrating. But I hope with a couple of weeks playing alongside those players and seeing the runs they make, that will start to bear fruit. So I I think over the next couple of weeks, I might look like an idiot in a, in a few weeks' time. I think things will look a lot better. We'll have more players back. I think we'll have a few wins under our belt. I think Rashford will score a couple of goals and subsequent podcasts will be a lot more cheery than this one.
0: Everything's rosy in the world of Alex Wiley, despite uh, four, four defeats out of six.
1: <laughs> I just <laughs> I just always think, like, when people think we're good, I always want to say we're not as good as everyone thinks. And when people think we're bad, I always want to say we're not as bad as everyone thinks, because it's almost always the case. Fans just naturally overreact, either on the up or the down. So we're not as bad as everyone thinks. Um I do think a couple e- of easy games, a couple players coming back from injury, players getting used to each other, I do think some results will start to happen. And I actually thought the Bayern Munich game, we didn't actually play that bad.
0: No, it was a funny game. It was a really funny game. Um, it felt like Bayern had United sort of arm's length for, for most of it, and then occasionally let something slip and then United would come in. But it was the mentality that frustrated me against Bayern, It was the score and a goal and then immediately conceding and then doing it again for the second time in the game. I mean, I saw some people on social media say that United showed good character in the game by making it close, basically. But I think Bayern could have turned it up a little bit if they'd needed to. And I think that's what they did after United's first two goals. Bayern just turned it up a little bit, restored the gap, did enough to win the game. It'll, it'll certainly be interesting when United play them at Old Trafford and w- and whether they can play them with a full team, with mm-hmm. a first-choice uh, side. That'll be interesting because, like you said, Bayern, yeah, they didn't seem like this powerhouse side, but I did feel like they had another level to go to. Uh, they'll obviously be one of the best teams that United play against this season, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and United's defeats away at Spurs, Arsenal, and Bayern will be focused on scrutinised because it's the continuation of this record under Ten Hag being very, very poor away against good sides. But then they are the most tricky tricky games. So mm. it feels like Ten Hag needs to have a plan B for those games and a way of playing well as the underdog, which United were amazing at doing under Solskjaer, two wins at PSG, multiple wins away at City. Ten Hag just doesn't have that in his locker as a manager Yeah, I think that's something for him to to ponder. But I do agree. I think he will find a solution over the next coming games. And just the way the fixture list pans out will almost, I was going to say guarantee some wins, but it will surely provide United with some wins of these easier fixtures on paper coming up. And then we won't get the chat about Ten Hag being under pressure. We won't get so much chat about, Take over and the ownership and the Glazers, all that all that needs to be addressed, don't get me wrong, but it'll just yeah. get funneled back into the conversation when United are losing games, won't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it will. Um, We haven't really spoken about the Glazer situation, but I do think... So it's nothing a to lot say,
0: it's of... nothing to report, is there? It's just frustrating.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I do think a lot of the issues that we've spoken about, the players on the pitch, application, men- mentality... I think a lot of that does does result from the Glazer ownership, directly or indirectly. The various decisions we made in the transfer market is the result of the Glazers and the people that the Glazers have hired. The, this sale is just—it's so. I imagine it must be really difficult to work under those conditions, under yeah. just a complete lack of clarity. And I I do I do feel sorry for Ten Hag because it's kind of like if you were to write on paper almost anything that could could go, could go wrong for a football club, it more or less has at the start of this season. So I think talk of of Ten Hag being under pressure is is not fair. I mean, yeah, I think I he's made mistakes. He's he's not perfect, but no manager in the world is perfect. I just I do think in a few weeks' time. A lot of this bad luck will iron out and things will regress the mean a little bit more and we'll have easier fixtures. And I do think it will turn around a little bit. But even saying that, you know, at the start of the season, we I think I had United as third and you had them as second off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, it might change that now.
1: Yeah, that that's that's looking that's looking difficult because there's so many sides, good sides pushing for these Champions League spots. I know I think there might be five spots now, but Spurs are looking better. I think Newcastle will still be good this season, even though they didn't have a huge amount of points at the start of the season. I think they still played quite well and had quite difficult fixtures. Um, City, obviously good. Liverpool looking better.
0: Yeah, it's going to be really tough.
1: It's going to be really, really tough. And to a point now where if I was to make a guess, I don't think we're going to get into the top four. I think Europa League spots are more likely. And also, I mean, we spoke about Brentford. Brentford have looked really good this season. I know from a points perspective, it's not been great. I think it's three three draws and one win um, and one loss. But from an expected goals perspective, in terms of what they're going forward and what they're against, I think they're third or fourth in the league, which is phenomenal given they've lost their best player. Um, uh, it's so amazing yeah.
0: what these teams like Brentford and um, Brighton and, even like a Palace and Villa, like there are some there are some decent sides out there, and they're going to be tough for United to beat them, um, home and away. Just on mm-hmm. the on the Glazer thing, I I was going to mention the Olegan Solshar interview in the Athletic, which I thought brought a few of those issues uh, to the public's attention in terms of the transfer policy, the the muddled thinking behind the Ronaldo deal, the mm-hmm. limit that he had on three major signings per summer which seemed really odd and restrictive mm. and surely you would prescribe that on a year-by-year basis depending on, on the state of the squad I mean that just seems odd business sense to say three signings no matter what um, when you're yeah. planning a, fo- a football club uh, and all the stuff he, he said about the players motivation and and the, some had the perception of themselves being better than they are mm-hmm. I know there's some of those players that he, he's probably talking about have gone but I think there's probably some of them that are still around and like you said, the the way the Glazers own and run the club is there's that trickle down effect into the playing staff and the coaching staff sometimes, and yeah, it just it just creates a, a picture of a club that's not cohesive. And yeah, if you compare United to Brighton, and I, I hate it when people compare United to Brighton because it's it isn't a comparison at all. Brighton have no expectations. They yeah. They're never covered in the media. Their defeats are not noticed. Their manager is never under pressure. So it's almost a, a moot point, but they are run a heck of a lot better than United, especially in terms of recruitment and from the ownership.
1: Yeah, look, if, if if Tony Bloom, the Brighton owner, was a United fan and had managed to buy the club, a lot of the issues we're speaking about now wouldn't wouldn't be happening. Yeah. Um, Everything about the way United, they, there's just no there's no strategy. It, it's so off the cuff. And from a financial perspective, I mean, things are just getting worse and worse financially. I mean, Amrabat had to be loaned because we couldn't actually afford the transfer fee in terms of FFP. In terms of debt, I think it's like 800 million at the moment, which is absolutely mind-boggling when you think about it. And then the lack of clarity with the sale... Is making it difficult for people at the club to actually just do their job. Like there'll be people at the club who won't know if they'll be employed in a couple of months' time. How are they meant to? How are they meant to think long term if they don't even know if they're going to be at the club long term? All these things have an effect. And whilst I think the injuries and various decisions on the pitch that could have gone our way have been unlucky, it's been compounded by just terrible ownership and. Whilst I think there will be an upturn in results in the near future, until the Glazers are gone, these are going to be problems that are going to happen every single transfer window and every single season. It doesn't matter what manager we get in, it doesn't matter what players we get in, it doesn't matter how lucky we are, we are not going to win a league title. We're not even going to get close to winning a league title until the Glazers go.
0: Yeah, some people on social media after the Yanana mistake against Bayern said, are United cursed. And I think in a way they are. is and the curse is called the Glazers, yeah. Uh, and that needs that needs to be removed uh, until, like, I say, until that point, United can't progress. Reggae on deadline day. I know uh, people are raving about his performances, but the loan signing of Reggio on deadline day for me summed summed it up because it's something that happened two years ago: Cavani and Tevez on deadline day, Igalo on deadline day. Mm. These moves have had completely no thought put into them other than like like my policy on football manager um as a kid for signing strikers on deadline day it's just yeah. so frustrating and when other clubs are getting the plaudits for their recruitment i think it's even more frustrating because you just feel why isn't that united you know mm-hmm. they they've got this wealth of support they've got this ridiculous mu- um spending power the revenue they create it just seems to to go to waste too often
1: yeah and talking and i know you said it was almost a mute point with Brighton. But what you notice that clubs like Brighton and Brentford do is they constantly plan far, far ahead into the future, not just in terms of who they're going to bring in, but who's going to be on the way out, future sales, um, players that maybe aren't fitting into the system. That kind of planning leads to you being able to ride the ups and downs of bad luck. Talk about Brentford. I mean, Brentford's best player has been suspended for, I mean, he's not going to be back until 2024, is he? Yeah, and yet, January. despite despite that, their performances are arguably better this season than they were last season. Why is that? Because they planned for it. You know, they lost David Raya, but before David Raya was even out the door, they already had his replacement Flecken, who, by the way, in terms of shot stopping last season, was one of, if not the best, shot stoppers in world football. And They brought him in before Raya was even out. You know, they bought in Sharda and they've got Wissa and Umbuemo because they knew that Ivan Tony had this looming over him and they've been able to phase them in and actually slightly change the way they play to account for those players. That kind of planning does not happen at United, it's completely knee jerk. Mm. And I mean, Reggion, like I said, good player. I-, I think he might actually be a better player than Malasia, to be brutally honest with you. But the mentality behind making that decision on deadline day. When you've already got two left backs, it's that that I question. And that happens all the time for United, every window.
0: Yeah, take uh, United's best player out and see if they could plan for his absence. I don't even know who the best player is at the moment, but uh, take Casemiro out and you'd have an even bigger gaping hole in midfield. So, Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't don't know where this goes in terms of the sale and uh, the change of ownership. It's, it's coming up to the first anniversary of when the club was put up for sale, which is c- completely mental, really. <laughs> How can not a club put kind of up thing. for sale for that long?
1: <laughs> not the kind of thing there should be an anniversary for.
0: No, no, yeah, it's like selling <laughs> your house, and then a year later you still haven't sold it. I mean, maybe, but very, very rarely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll leave it there. It's, it's, I'm sorry to the listeners that this has not been more structured, but I feel like it has been a good venting process um cathartic for both of us after the recent defeats and we managed to cover a little bit of everything I would like yeah. to go in in further depth in a future podcast for sure
1: yeah uh, sometimes when the when it's so overwhelming the amount of negativity and the bad things that happen it's impossible to have a truly focused podcast because there's so many different things you can talk about so I think for this for this as a one-off I think it makes sense to just touch on all the terrible things a little bit
0: just a massive rant yeah um all <laughs> right well that's pretty much all we've got time for for today's podcast uh thanks alex for for joining me and for coming back and ranting
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: uh you can follow alex and all his saber sports activities saber underscore sports on social media and you can subscribe to the podcast on spotify we are mainly audio only now there'll be a, a few clips on youtube but we're mainly spotify and apple so get subscribing and listening on there and we'll be back very soon thanks for listening